G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. Uh, we are in, I think, week five of um, this self-distancing and uh, social isolation. I've forgotten what it's even called, to be perfectly honest. But we're all keeping to ourselves and doing the right thing, or at least we're supposed to be. But the Footyology Podcast continues and uh, again, we are operating remotely. I'm in the uh, palatious uh, Connolly Studios, and uh, my footyology co-host Mark Fine is down at Southern FM, pushing all the buttons and hopefully getting them all right, turning them on and off at the appropriate times. As I say, a very good morning to him. How are you, Finey? I'm well. I'm assuming that if our listeners, our loyal podcast fans, are hearing this, then buttons have been correctly pushed. So I think we're going okay. I think we're putting together a, a brave COVID-19 version of the program with, of course, the help of our great sponsors. Uh, yes, or well, brave, relatively speaking, because there, there is some uh, genuine bravery being shown, mainly by health workers at the moment, not just here across the globe. But, uh, yeah, look, we're glad to be still coming to you. Plenty to talk about. This week, a bit of important footy news up front and uh, our usual segments. But you did mention the sponsors, Finey, and I think this is a very appropriate moment to give them a big, fat, juicy plug. Fat, juicy burgers. Andrew's Hamburgers have continued to provide wonderful Aussie-style burgers, the type that gets them at the top of all those rating lists that are now so popular, especially on social media. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, remain open during this difficult time because they are a takeaway establishment. There are rules in place there that guarantee social distancing. And with those observed, you can still have the best burger in town at Andrew's, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Why is it the best burger in town, Finey? I'm yeah. not convinced. Well, you know that the buns are par excellence. The crispy salad, the crispy salad accoutrements remain just that, as you always point out, beading with those drops of water that make you assured that they are freshly picked tomato lettuce. It's an all-meat patty of the finest Australian beef, juicy and succulent, cooked to perfection. And the additions of egg, bacon, are all of the highest quality. Put that all together and you get the great Aussie hamburger. I've got to have one as soon as we finish finding. Where do I go? 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I'll tell you what, while I'm down there, I've just been thinking, my house, it's just falling down around our ears. You know what? I think I might go and get a new house. Where should I do that? Sure, you'll tracking well if you can afford a new house then that being said west point properties will give you value and quality for a rebuild or a refurb in inner city southeastern suburbs of melbourne so you know what it's not impossible west point properties 
ask for the principal there, the great Nick Spartels. Yeah, thanks for your generous support, guys. We couldn't survive without you. But just as, if not more importantly, we can't survive without you, the listeners. We've got a big show just waiting to deliver you. Let's not waste any more time finding. Let's get straight into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. Okay, well, uh, a bit of uh, news going on, the usual corona updates, which we'll talk about in due course, but there was one, um, uh, well, it was breaking news at the time, but a fairly, well, not fairly, a very serious um, story late last week, which was uh, Lockie Hunter's, uh, I was going to say indiscretion, but it's worse than that because it's bloody serious stuff and he was bloody stupid. But uh, Lockie Hunter, of course, having a blazing row with his fiance, deciding to head over to teammate Billy Gower's place. Unfortunately, he had been imbibing before he did so. Crashed into not one, but a group of cars. And uh, then happened to bump into teammate Bailey Smith, who was visiting his girlfriend, which was just where Lockie had crashed his car. Uh, Bailey Smith gave Lockie Hunter a lift to Billy Gower's place. And, uh, well, it's fair to say he's in a fair bit of trouble for it. In fact, uh, stories this morning saying that right at this stage, he's already been fined the mandatory $1,652 for breaking the stay-at-home rule. I'm not sure what that is actually called technically, but you know what I'm talking about. He's facing a mandatory AFL fine of $5,000. He could lose the vice-captaincy. He no doubt will be suspended for at least a couple of games, you'd think, by the club. And on top of that, He's looking at a repair bill in the order of, according to reports today, $150,000. That is a fair whack. Uh, Bailey Smith also copped the fine for failing to uh, socially isolate. Uh, I have a little bit of sympathy for him. He's a young guy and uh, he's he was uh, simply at his girlfriend's place. Um, Billy Gowers appears to be the innocent party, but uh, it's a catalogue of disaster finding for the Bulldogs, certainly in a public relations sense. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, Lockie Hunter has, I guess in a fit of frustration, we'll call it, just broken law after modern law, and there's not going to be any sympathy for him other than, I guess, he must have hit four pretty expensive cars. I mean, that figure $150,000 because, of course, he won't be covered by insurance, not given that he's drinking over uh, driving over 0.05. So that will um, void his insurance. Clearly, they, he's caused a fair bit of damage to, obviously, some pretty expensive cars, I would have thought. He has, uh, not to mention his reputation, which was uh, in a pretty good place after a few years now of sustained good form and having a leadership position. I'll tell you one thing I noticed with this, that uh, you mentioned um, the reaction. Well, it's been savage against him, but also um, very savage against people on social media who... Uh, I guess, flew the flag for him, one of whom was Channel 7 reporter Tom Brown. And he 
tweeted something about feeling sympathy for these players because they're locked up and nothing to do and blah, blah, blah. Hank got absolutely smacked down in a fashion I haven't seen often on Twitter, which is a pretty rough and ready place, but he got absolutely slapped around the chops for that comment. So um, I've got to say, I, I think that's good. I think the attitudes about drink driving have hardened to the point where, um, you know, there's no sympathy for anyone. There's no excuse for anyone. That was one of the main messages that came out of this for me. Zero tolerance to both elements of transgression here. Drink driving, absolutely. In fact, you know, when people have, um, they're on the road and there are some apps that you can download that give you notifications about uh, traffic and traffic volume. And I don't think anybody, I, I don't have too many problems with those that point out where speed cameras are or red light cameras are because I think... You know, just as a reminder that you don't go through red lights and you don't speed. But I'm totally against any notifications for where booze buses are, for example. I think that they're out there yeah. for good reason. And those booze and drug buses need to work with the, you know, under the shroud of secrecy because that's how they're most effective. And this is just another example where the public may be tolerant of giving a leg up to drivers with certain elements of uh, transgressions because some are seen as being revenue raisers, but absolutely not with drink driving. I think that we all agree that drink and drug driving is beyond the pale and we don't accept it. To that end, it's also interesting to see the reaction to uh, even Bailey Smith, who you said uh, quite rightly, I guess there's a level of understanding given that makeship and probably just trying to do the right thing and making sure that a, an inebriated Lockie Hunter got to where he was going without getting behind the wheel again. Nevertheless, there is and there should be zero tolerance for those who transgress all the rules put in place by this government and by the federal government to make sure that we stay separate. And the current positive numbers relating to COVID-19 can only stay in encouraging if people don't slack off. So uh, not too much not too much uh, slack cut for Bailey either, I would have thought. No, no, well argued, and I'll, uh, I won't harp on this, but I'll get you to head around to uh, Andrew Bolt's place and give him the message because he's come out this morning with another column saying, how do we get the lockdown measures so wrong? Well, Herald Sun, how did you get your editorial policy so wrong to employ that absolutely irresponsible peanut writing anti-social crap like that in the pages of your paper. I'm pretty fired up about that one, not for the first time. Rowan, let, right, let, well, let, okay. let me to that end just say this, and I've said it before, but I want to reiterate it. And that is when, you know, thankfully, a time will come when this crisis is over. And if we all sit back and say, gee, have a look at the amount of infected people in Australia, have a look at the total deaths regrettable, though hopefully small in number comparative to other countries, if people turn around and say that given those numbers, the reaction of the governments, both state and federal, was heavy-handed and not worth the, the financial implication on, the, on going forward was not worth the, or, or relative to the numbers of people infected, if people say that, you know what, that means that both governments did the right thing. Let's hope that we say it's heavy-handed. Let's hope that we say it was uh, too much 
compared to the loss of life. Because you know what? The alternative would be where we, where England and the USA are today, scratching their heads as to why they were so slow, why they didn't take this seriously, and why they are losing so many of their citizens on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely right. But he will say that. He'll say it because he's an opportunistic, um, pretty ordinary uh, journo. Uh, all right, let's move on. So... Uh, the latest on when and if and when AFL season 2020 might start. Well, uh, I had this to talk about anyway because I thought that during Gil McLaughlin's update a few days ago, he dropped a little, not a bombshell, but a bit of information that I didn't think sort of got the traction it warranted. And he's actually, not long after we record this on Monday morning, he has been on 3AW Breakfast this morning and uh, delivered what I think is a fairly uh, sobering assessment about stuff. And that's not about when we start. It's about the circumstances we will see the entire season in. So a few days ago, Gil was asking about the possibility of crowds coming back. And uh, he was was asked, is it a, a remote possibility? He said, probably, but we haven't ruled it out definitively. Perhaps not surprisingly, the AFL website um, wrote that up saying, well, there's a chance we could have crowds rather than the more obvious negative connotation that he put on it. Um, And he also said, which I I thought was interesting, in the end, we need to find a premier. Well, you know, we don't if the competition is going to be compromised to the (laughs) point where it becomes an absolute joke. Um, And... This morning, he has he's expanded on that question about crowds, the possibility of crowds. And his comment this morning was, we wouldn't do anything without the government and the chief health officer signing off on it. And based on the comments of the chief health officer yesterday, which was that, you know, there could be a risk about crowds at anything, he said, I think it's a challenge to have crowds at all this year. Now, I'm presuming that means at all means whether the grand final is in October, November or far more likely December. So I've got to be honest, Fanny, my instinctive reaction to that is if you're talking about an entire season, including a grand final, a grand final played before zero people, I don't want it. I I don't want any part of that. I think that just completely makes a joke of the entire season and it's not worth doing. I agree. I really, I, looking from a selfish point of view or taking off my more global hat as a presenter of this podcast and a footy journalist of sorts, as a St Kilda supporter, Rowan, and I've mentioned this before, I have not waited all my life. So I've never seen a, a premiership. That's obvious because St Kilda won in 66 and I was one year old at the time. I would absolutely be devastated if St Kilda won a flag and there was nobody there, me first and foremost. It just wouldn't, it'd be such a hollow feeling. And even if we went on to win other flags, the idea of the drought breaker not being a festival of celebration for these long-suffering St Kilda supporters would just be totally unpalatable. So... I think most supporters would feel like that, even if their team isn't breaking a drought. Who wants a premiership if there's nobody there to see it? It's, oh, I, I really think they have to consider carefully 
how football is going to look without any fans. And to that end, one of my life hacks, and I'll keep my powder dry, is a solution to that problem. But as I said, that'll come up in life hacks. Well, this is, I think, you know, if we're, well, clearly, the absolute earliest we're going to start, this is according to even the most positive AFL people, is late July, okay? So we're still three months away from a start. Now, that, for me, is a real compromise in itself. But, uh, you know, if you're talking about the entire season played, literally not before anyone, um I just can't cop that. I think the I think the emerging story, and it's going to be interesting to see how widely this is reported too, Finey, because don't forget the major media outlets, they have a obviously a vested interest in the competition starting and going on and having a, a premiership. I think the the real story's gonna be, you know, like how far are you prepared to compromise the integrity of this season and the integrity of your organization by having in effect, a, a reality show rather than a football competition. You know, it could be an episode of It's a Knockout or something like that, just missing the obstacle course. And I, I don't think, I don't know, maybe maybe we're wrong on this, but I don't think the bulk of fans would want that. I really don't. And are the media organisations going to have the guts to look beyond self-interest and go, no, nah, this is wrong. We've got to just write this year off. Now, that to me is going to be... I think, uh, a big picture issue whilst this lockout goes on because, I don't know, look, I'd be, I'd, I'd be really interested to see what our listeners think. But, you know, I, a grand final played before no people isn't a real grand final. It's a joke. Here, here. All right. Okay, well, uh, we've talked about that. Um, in terms of... When the well, we're no closer to knowing when it will start. What we did get was, I guess, an, uh, an announcement of sorts that the AFL planned to make an announcement. So we had an announcement about an impending announcement um, at the end of April. So we're uh, what we're one and a half weeks away from an announcement about the date. But that you know, that's a very fluid date as well because as we know this situation is changing on a daily basis so you know don't don't expect definitively to hear a statement about when it starts again um and then you know like we've talked about they they said they want a time frame of four weeks to get everyone ready um so you know i, I yeah like i said i mean the, the crowds thing for me is the clincher but i have been feeling personally more and more like I'm not sure I want this season to go on. It, it just it looks so ridiculously different to the footy we know. I I don't think, and this is a we will never know the definitive answer to this until years down the track. But I don't think the bulk of the footy public are going to take this year's competition seriously. And I think if you have a premiership that has a sizable asterisk against it, that is. That is just not a healthy situation. Rowan, are we, the AFL that is, and other competitions, but let's just concern ourselves with the AFL, are we just trying to smash a square peg into a round hole here? Yes. Yeah, we are. Well, that's um, and, how, that, and that's it, how it, it feels. Well, it really underlines the AFL's dilemma. And look, it's not like I don't have sympathy for them. The revenue 
question is absolutely critical. And the only way they're going to get any is to buy playing games. Um, but you can you can see how the vested interests are coming. And in fact, credit where it's due, Mark Robinson, I think, has written a pretty good column in the Herald Sun today about Eddie Maguire and Eddie's demeanour lately. And he's getting very snaky when questioned about, A, membership refunds, and now about the question of player hubs. Um, you know, he's sort of saying that, you know, if players say they're not going to go along with the idea of player hubs, there'll be a mutiny. Well, there might be a mutiny of the bean counters, but, I mean, the players would be reluctant to do it because of safety issues, nothing else. And um, there's been quite considerable pushback against that concept of player hubs over the last week. We've, the AFLPA has expressed a few reservations. You've had... Um, uh, I think officials from GWS and Hawthorne both expressing some reservations and none other than Brett Sutton, the state chief health officer, expressing reservations by saying it's a risk. Now, you know, like we have to be guided by people like Sutton. And if the players see a comment like that, they're of course going to have doubts in their mind. And just, you know, we, we smelled a rat here at the moment this is brought up. And it's just, it's getting smellier because, you know, as soon as someone mentioned player hubs, the media picked it up and ran with it. And it was like no one was even bothering to ask, well, okay, how do the logistics of it actually work? And now people are, and they're realising that there are just problems left, right and centre. It is not that workable a solution. I mean, the player hubs would have been, or are being put in place theoretically for one reason and one reason only, and that is to circumvent the absolute season killer that is interstate travel. So if states still demand 14 days of isolation before somebody can enter their state or even some states saying that non-essential entry is banned, until the states lift those entry clauses, then there can be no football. So what they're saying is we put all the players into these hubs. Yes, they may have to isolate for 14 days to get into that area. But once they're there, we don't have any problems about travelling state through state. But of course, the question that we raised was, well, hang on, that's okay if you're playing teams from your own hub. You can't have a season where you just repeatedly play the same five teams over and over. There still has to be some interplay between the hubs. So it doesn't solve the problem at all. Yep. No, absolutely. And like I said, we're, we're, I think we're starting to see a pretty clear sort of demarcation line between those in the quote unquote industry, I hate using that word, who whose primary motivation here is financial and those who uh, are concerned about either uh, health and safety or integrity. And um it's, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but I think we're seeing differences between who, you know, whose first and foremost concern is about the game in a big picture sense and others who are are thinking about the balance sheet. Yeah. So Square peg, round holes. Yeah, I uh, agree with you. Okay, there's enough news for this week. Uh, I think it's time we mused on life in general finding, so let's do that right now. Life Hacks, building a better world.
Okay, well, who knows where this segment goes, but uh, often in some strange, uh, weird and wonderful directions. But uh, I think mine are fairly straight up and down this week, uh, if not a little serious. Now, one of them, Finey, I, I am not one of those people that is constantly obsessed by what's going on in the old US of A. Uh, I know a lot of people are, are, but it's been pretty hard not to keep your eye on it over the last four years with uh, a certain person uh, occupying the White House. And I, I said some time ago uh, on this program, and I, th I think I was sort of half joking at the time, but I talked about, is the US headed for civil war? Well, after watching what's been unfolding over there the last few days, uh, I don't say that with any hint of levity at all because you have a president who is basically encouraging on social media um, uh, citizens of a variety of states to defy their local government's orders about social distancing and isolation and quarantine. And they, there's been a series of public protests out in the streets with thousands of people <clears throat> lined up willfully uh, disobeying those measures uh, and and agitating that there should be a, a reopening of, of you know life as we knew it well that that is headed for big trouble in fact one of them I'm trying I don't want to name the state incorrectly but there was one state where I saw pictures of the protest. And it was, it might as well have been a um, an NRA protest because basically everyone seemed to be white male wearing army fatigues and toting an AK-47. And this was uh, supposedly a march about uh, reopening the state. Well, it was a pretty intimidating show of aggression. And I'll tell you, it's only, it's only going to take one idiot among these people to uh, open fire on a, a, a state official and she's on. And uh, I'm, you know, like, I mean, it doesn't affect us directly, but I, I just, the, the US is such an unstable environment now. The systems of government have been gradually broken down, you know, with uh, Trump, the Trump administration openly defying Supreme Court orders about revealing tax information and stuff like that. He made a comment last week at a casual comment at a press conference last week that uh, his presidential power um, could override any decision, which actually wasn't true, but that's what he said. I mean, it's I, I'm starting to get to a point where I'm thinking it's not inconceivable that they could have a second civil war. Um, how many years? Uh, 200 and, no, 150 odd years after the last one. I know that you are sort of politically aware of actives involved, but you'd have to be, again, living under a rock not to realise that the United States has as their... What, what's the pre president's position called? The something in general in charge? Commander-in-chief. Yeah, commander-in-chief. That's the one. As the commander-in-chief, a very volatile... Um, spur of the moment and at times irrational president. I mean, 
I know that he has his fans because of the financial situation that many Americans found themselves in after the last administration, but even those that are financially better off must be nervous at the volatility created with him as president. So, as I said, I'm nowhere near as politically charged as you are, but I am keenly aware of the fact that, and because of the role that the US plays in the world, how volatile and unstable this makes the entire geopolitical situation because he quite frankly is a he's just a loose cannon of the most dangerous kind indeed all right what's your first one all minor footy mate is that okay oh well that's good yeah (laughs) well we're purportedly a football podcast so yep go right ahead okay and this first one's just an observation the extraordinary career. Well, if if you had to put a headline on Marley and Pickett's career so far, I guess it would be goes well fresh. You know, he was drafted last year on May the twenty seventh by Richmond in the mid season draft, and he had to yeah. wait one hundred and twenty three days to make his senior debut. So game one, he waited one hundred and twenty three days, hmm. winning grand final worth the wait. He then had to wait 104 days to play his second game. Now, if we start at the end of July, it'll be roughly 100 days till he plays his third game. So in racing parlances, he goes well fresh and his runs have been well spaced. Do you know that that means that he's on target to play 100 consecutive games in 30 years? (laughs) Well, how how old was he on debut? He's 28. 20, 20, yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, it's like it's just, is there anything about his career that is orthodox? Certainly <laughs> not at the moment. But, no, no, it's a, very, it's a very good point. But also, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to the, because I'm assuming the gap between the third and the fourth game will be a week or thereabouts. So, I don't know, maybe he can't go well with, consecutive runs there are some other little factors with the mathematics of the current lockdown Carlton will now for the first time since 1995 go through April without losing a game (laughs) yeah yeah and that's a good run and I guess do Melbourne fans will they have a right to complain when we do finally return because they'll be playing off about a 104-day break as compared to other teams that will have up to a 107-day break. <laughs> and, and they do, have to, well, they do also <clears throat> have to factor in flying back from Perth. So if they lose in round two, will they cite the shorter break as the reason? <laughs> You'd hope not. I, thought, I was waiting for the gag about, um, you know, uh, like no excuses about going to the snow and missing the finals if the finals are in December. But uh, there you go. You went the better. I thought you took the better option. Okay, <laughs> any others there? No, they're just my my mathematical observations from having to wait so long for round two. No, I like that. I like that. Very good. Okay, well, my next is um, we're all familiar, or I presume people are familiar with the concept of the chain letter um, in which, in fact, I'm not, 100% sure how they works, but basically you sent uh, a group of uh, letters off to several friends and then they each posted them to several friends and whatever silly message was being passed on, eventually 
reached an enormous amount of people. Well, um, they came to be known as a uh, pretty annoying sort of um, pastime that people uh, didn't like receiving. Well, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm noticing the same thing starting to happen a fair bit on Twitter. Uh, to wit, I've been asked to be a participant uh, in, I think, three or four different Twitter chain winners over the last week. And uh, uh, some of them are for really good cause. Like last night, there was one about um, suicide awareness among men. So people were asked to copy a message, post a picture of themselves and send it on to 10 people. Now, that's a lot. Um, what happens, though, unfortunately, on Twitter is you've got all the addresses that have already or handles that have already been accumulated in the message you get, you add another 10. And so you end up getting the responses to this message from the entire um, uh, entire populace of the chain tweet, uh, I should call it, which means that your notifications just never stop going off. So um, I uh, stumbled upon the vagaries of that concept last night and and let me stress again it was you know this one it was a very very worthwhile exercise about raising awareness about male suicide we know how terrible the statistics are for that but um boy oh boy uh if you get involved in that uh make sure you you're not after a quiet time on twitter because you're not going to have one i can tell you that uh all right you're up okay very interesting that you should uh point out that Today, Monday morning, Gil McLaughlin was on 3AW suggesting that the season <clears throat> may well go ahead without any crowds. But I don't believe that is necessarily essentially going to happen or that the AFL can't lead the way in, in fact, making sure that it doesn't happen. And it's a simple mathematical formula that I apply here that I think could work and observe social distancing. Now, of course... Getting into the ground would require the same sort of patience that you have to exhibit when going to a supermarket. In other words, one and a half metres, you know, queues have to be kept one and a half metres, people separated one and a half metres in each queue. Yeah. But how about this for the mathematical formula of how it can work? What's the capacity of the MCG? 100,000? Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, to observe social distancing... Divide by four for any ground. And what I mean by that is every person who you sit in a seat and every seat next to you is empty. Correct? Yep. So that halves the capacity of the ground. Yeah. But every second row has to be empty as well, halving it again. So, in other words, if you sat in a seat with nobody next to you and nobody in front or behind you, I think you safely observe social distancing. So you can turn the MCG into a 25,000-seater, approximately. Eddie had into approximately, or so, sorry, it's not Eddie had, it is Marvel. Marvel into approximately a 15,000-seater, and so on and so forth. And I can't see why that doesn't observe social distancing and becomes a bit of a template for how we get people into the ground. Mm. No, it does. It does. And I'm, I'm not ridiculing for it for a moment. Two things come to mind immediately. One, um, no, I forgot what the second one was. Well, the main one is what about that? How many people would you need to police that 
properly. Oh, no, the second one was how do you decide which 25,000 get into the MCG for the grand final? Difficult. Don't get me wrong. There would be way more demand than the supply could accommodate, but surely 25,000 is better than zero. Do you reckon, um, I, I, like, I, it's not funny really, but I'm thinking about it. Do you reckon, say they did that, we had the grand final in circumstances you describe, do you think they'd set up some sort of stupid temporary super box set up so the corporate still managed to get more than half the tickets? And, uh, you know, we had some ridiculous sort of open-air corporate box. Uh, that's the problem. There's 25,000 just to allow the heavy hitters in, in which case, big deal. May as well have zero people in if no genuine <clears> fans <throat> are going to be allowed to make it. But I don't know, maybe I thought that possibly the AFL or whichever competition wanted to could, in fact, submit that blueprint to the relevant health authority get the ticket become a bit of a template for other competitions going forward uh, no look I, I you know it's a, it's not without merit and you know what i think you should do with that finding well you've given it air on this podcast of course i think you should uh get active on your twitter account which has lain dormant for a little bit lately again and uh throw it out there and see what people say right, I'll, I'll put it on twitter straight after the podcast that it's football uh, related. on Twitter. It's football related. I, what I did was I didn't want to be, go on Twitter and become another quasi health expert mm. or a quasi COVID nineteen expert. I find that a little bit grating. But no, this is a football matter, and I will definitely put that on straight after the podcast. That's good. Don't forget to direct them to the podcast at the same time. I shall, preferably with a link. Okay. All right. No, no, that was an interesting one. All right, last one for me, and this is deadly serious. Um, now, we know how big an economic toll this situation is going to have and we'll probably be feeling the impacts of it for several years. Um, but we're already seeing it cut a swathe through industries. Obviously, the entertainment sector has uh, been gutted, you know, the arts sector, um, hospitality, you know, restaurants all closed. And, yeah, I know that, that's, I hasten to add, I'm not saying this is poor us sort of thing but boy the sports media at the moment is absolutely copying it you know it's it's carnage and it's uh it's really really sad you know to see people of um experience and capabilities basically losing work because there's no sport to cover so um the latest developments there fox sports that had i seem to have had like two or three rounds of uh, stand downs or retrenchments, call it what you will, and uh, it continues. I, I was quite taken aback at the the news during the week that Julian De Stoop, um was the latest sort of casualty of this situation. I mean, Jules is a a terrific, you know, very professional sports reporter, and he's very experienced. I think he's been at Fox now for fourteen years or something like that. Um, and for someone of that sort of uh, rating to to also now find themselves without work it gives you some idea how how desperate the times are so uh, i mean all the best to all the best to of course all the best to anyone who has lost work out of this and i dare say there wouldn't be any of us who don't know someone or have someone very close to them who has lost a job my daughter's lost her job you know it's everyone is affected but um it really hits home when it's in the industry in which you work 
and uh, you see it happening to people you know and respect. The other uh, important one too was the Pacific Star Network, which is still the nominal owner of the radio station with whom we used to work for, on SEN. Um, they have now asked the stock exchange for a third time to suspend um, share trading whilst they uh, try and find backers for the uh, the company. Now, uh, I'm, I'm pretty fi- financially naive, I admit, and there might be ways and means of sort of getting around this, but the fact that it's got to that stage and, um, you know, I'm, from what I read, we're sort of led to believe that management is desperately soliciting financial backing to keep the things afloat. Um, yeah, look, things are really, really crook in, in the world of sports media and, you know... Um, if you've got no sport on, uh, that's what we're all talking about. And we said at the start, you know, it's going to be hard to keep coming up with things to talk about. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's one or two radio stations that are certainly finding that out now. It's, all right. Yeah, it, it is the carnage, short-term loss of work or people put on the leave, etc., is devastating in all industries. What will be hard to calculate, but in the end, the greater evil is how many people actually have no job to go back to and we just have to wait to yeah. see exactly what permanent damage has been created by the hiatus of COVID-19. Time will tell. Let's yeah. move on and I'm going to finish with a one of those time fillers that proved very satisfying for me with some interesting bits and pieces and that was going back on YouTube and just going down the rabbit hole as I occasionally do and I ended up in the 1986 Foster's Cup. And I oh, watched... yeah, don't tell me. Um, that was, uh, I think Carlton and Hawthorne played in that grand final too. I don't, I don't really know because oh, I, I got caught sorry. up with two games in the earlier rounds that I watched in full, yep. both games in yep. full, and they involved North Adelaide. Oh yeah, and right. they, and they were two. They were very good. They were two very stage. good wins. They beat Melbourne and Collingwood. Yeah, well, they were coached by uh, Mick Noonan. Mick they Noonan. played in three grand, yep. three grand finals against Glenelg in three years. Lost the first two and won the last one. So, um, I'm sure you'll know the answer to the bulk of this. So, who were some of their star players? Because they had some really good players in that team. Uh, well, they had in '86. Well, so that was in the middle of it. Well, they had both Jarmans, Andrew Spot and Darren Jarman. Yep, they yep. had um, Matt, Matty Campbell. Um, they had a big ruckman forward called Michael Parsons. Yeah, they had two two very um, good ruckmen. Yep. They had Tony Antrobus uh, roving. Spot on. Um, so you're doing well. Uh, oh, I ended up watching quite a fair bit of South Australian footy in the mid '80s. Um, I think was John Roberts playing for them. No, they had a pretty no. good. No, not John Roberts. No, um, no. They had, they had okay, a couple of no, keep... a couple of Rileys. John Riley, who played one game for Footscray. Oh yeah, yep. And Stephen Riley, and they were both very good players. Um, they Mickey Poynton, ex Fitzroy player. Michael. Poynton. Oh yeah, Michael Poynton. Yeah, he yep. was very good. But you've done brilliantly. You've got them all, bar probably. Possibly the most famous of the lot, their big full forward. Uh, don't tell me. Oh, um, uh, was it Grenville Dietrich? Spot on. 
Yeah, right. Big, big Grenville. So they had, well, the first game against Melbourne was extraordinary because of the scoreline, I reckon. So the final score was North Adelaide 13-10, defeated Melbourne 8-13. Melbourne had a pretty good team in, don't worry about that. What was extraordinary about it was at three-quarter time, North Adelaide led seven goals to four. So Melbourne have kicked twice as many, you know, they've kicked four more goals in the last quarter and North Adelaide have kicked six goals in the last quarter. And what's unusual about it is that last quarter included the biggest downstorm, down, downpour you've ever seen. It was torrential rain. Like, you couldn't see oh, the play. Really? At one point, you couldn't see the players. Yet, both teams have almost... Melbourne has, and North Adelaide has almost doubled their goal tally for the entire match in that quarter. Quite unusual. Was the game at Waverley? No, that game was in Adelaide. Oh, okay. Adelaide Ad- Oval. Ad- where? Where Ad- they? Adelaide oh, Oval. Are you sure it was Adelaide 100% Oval? 100% because it was being extolled. Okay. It's... it's, bri- it's its virtues were being extolled by the commentary team. This magnificent new facility was being had praise heaped upon it. So okay. in, in the second uh-huh. in the second game, a bit of a um, it was a, a, a game where North Adelaide got out to a lead. Collingwood reeled them in and then had a lead of their own, and North Adelaide finished all over the top of Collingwood to win eight nineteen to nine five. Wow. But I want to talk about an extraordinary football career that started and ended in this game. Do you know the son of a well-known champion, not a champion, but a, a, a very well-known player from another club who played in this game for Collingwood? Oh, um, can you give me a clue? His father played for Geelong, but his uncle was even more famous. Also for Geelong. Oh, um, another clue. Yeah, his father and uncle were twins. Oh, uh, Lord. Correct. Now Stuart Lord, of course, who played with brother Alistair, who won a Brownlow medal. His son Tim Lord played for Collingwood in this game. How is this for an oh, AF- right. how is this for an AFL career? This he never played a senior game for Collingwood. This Foster's Cup game was his only, you know, in brackets senior appearance for Collingwood. He started. He was a member of the starting eighteen, and fifteen minutes into the first quarter, he's actually really solidly built. He had three or four possessions, earning. Praise from, I think, Lou Richards, who said, really like the look of this kid. He went off, there was interchange then, but very sparingly used. He went off 15 minutes in the first quarter because he lost a contact lens. Hi, did the old uh, Jeff Blethen. He never came back on. And that was the end of his senior career. So, this poor kid... Lost, loses a contact lens, never makes it back onto the field, Lee Matthews is coach, and never again gets a game for the club. Quite amazing. That's tough. No, yeah. That's a good story. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. How'd you find that out? Well, I sort of followed it up. So 
he definitely went off with the contact lens and never came back on. So then I checked his entire career. He never played another Foster's Cup game that year. And he never played a senior game. So that's his career. There was another player who came on in the second half for Collingwood who never played a senior game, a kid called Brendan Bugs, a back pocket. But at least right. at least he had two Foster's Cup games and never lost a contact lens. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, there's that. So a bit, um, some, right, so a bit of interesting stuff out of that game. No, that no, was good. I liked it. Some interesting life hacks this week. Okay, there's enough for that segment. I think it's time, finally, we revisited the past as we're prone to do and talk about some of our favourite music, movies and TV. We'll tell you what year right now. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies and TV. Okay, well, vinyl and video time, and uh, we've gone back, uh, way back in the distant past recently. Uh, what, what was it? 1967 we did, uh, and then I chose something a little more contemporary. It's your turn, Finey, and as is your want, you're t- swinging the time pendulum all over the place. What year are we doing today? Yeah, apologies for those who love vinyl, because I don't think there was too much of it in 2011, but we need to be cognizant of the fact our listeners come in all ages, genders and sizes. So let's go to 2011. All right, one for the kiddies. <laughs> we've got uh, we've got a bit more contemporary uh, with this week. All right, well, as you know, I want to rattle off a list of uh, significant albums that came out that year. Uh, what I have learned in this research is that uh, me and popular music had parted ways well before 2011 because I called up albums of 2011 and I found literally about half a dozen that I'd even heard of. And uh, the only other, to me, significant album I can find beyond the one I actually chose was by Adele and she released 21 in 2011, which I'm assuming did pretty well because she's, uh, well, everything she does seems to go well. But... What I've come up with is, um, this is a good album. They're a favourite band of mine. Uh, They cop a bit of flack these days because uh, a lot of people think that the stuff they do is pretty sort of disposable and tends to sound a bit same-ish. But this, to me, was an album that uh, is right among the best of the albums they produced. I'm talking about uh, Foo Fighters, finally. Dave Grohl's band, which uh, has been going since 1995, of course, picking up the pieces after the shattering loss of Kurt Cobain. And uh, Foo Fighters' seventh album came out in 2011. It was called Wasting Light. And I rank it in the realms of Foo Fighters albums. I'd have this at number three behind only their first two releases, the self-titled and the colour and the shape, which a lot of people nominate as their best album. Wasting Light was real back to basics for the Fooey. So it was uh, recorded actually in Dave Grohl's garage, um, professionally set up garage, but it was a a desire on his part to return to that sort of raw, uh, very guitar-driven rock that um, they had in their early years. He got in Butch Vig as producer, and if that name rings a bell, 
It's because, yes, he was in garbage, and yes, he produced the uh, blockbusting Nevermind album for Nirvana in 1991. And it has that sort of feel about it, very clean sound, but very guitar heavy. They got back uh, lead guitarist Pat Smear, who played with the band early on, but had departed for a fair while. He came back and uh, joined the party. And he got in a number of guests as well, uh, including Fee Wable from The Tubes, who was part of one of the songs on it. And a favourite of mine, finally, Bob Mould of Huskadoo and uh, Solo fame. And uh, Bob joined him on uh, a song called Dear Rosemary, which did pretty well. But uh, standout tracks on this album, the opener is a ripping Foo Fighters track, Bridge Burning. Um, has that big anthemic chorus that they love so much. Uh, second track, Rope, which was the first single off this album. Got a fantastic lead break in it as well. Uh, another favourite track of mine, White Limo, um, which is really punky and has distorted vocals and a fantastic film clip in which uh, Dave and the band are being chauffeured around in a limo by none other than Lemmy from Motorhead. Uh, sadly no longer with us but that was a, a great clip and a great track um, these days pretty good song back and forth another favorite of mine miss the misery also a good track and i should have known which did pretty well um, i found a few of the foo fighters recent albums a bit forgettable they don't tend to stick in your head but this one was certainly an exception to that rule i thought it was uh, a really good album if you haven't heard it if your knowledge of the Foo Fighters sort of starts and ends in the last century, I'd suggest you check this one out because it was definitely, in my view, a return to fall from the Foo Fighters. So Wasting Light is my choice of album for 2011. What do you got? I've got a single and it's certainly noteworthy because when you look at the Billboard Top 100 songs for 2011, you get a pang of... Uh, national pride when you see that it was an Australian song that was at number one for the year. And that was uh, yes. Somebody I Used to Know by Gotcha. And I've got to say that I think it's actually a great track. Maybe a, uh, a sort of one-hit wonder he will be known as because it, it's a mega hit that he's not been able to match. But he certainly hit all the right notes with Somebody I Used to Know and... Uh, He's also gains great credit, you know, by mid-2019, there had been 1.3 billion views of somebody I used to know on YouTube, but Gotye, or uh, as his real name is, and, and we should admit that he's actually not born Gotye, he was born Vuta de Bakker, or Wally de Bakker in Belgium. He's never monetized it, and he refuses to put ads on somebody I used to know on YouTube, so he's never made a cent out of it on YouTube, and hes I, I think he's got to be given a big tick of approval for that. Only the fifth ever Australian song to be number one on the Billboard charts, and because he's born in Belgium, he's known as a Belgian-Australian, came to Australia when he was two. They, his parents went to Sydney but settled in Melbourne, and he grew up on the Mornington Peninsula. The second ever Belgian song to get to number one on the Billboard charts. And I know that you are a musical genius, Rowan, but I bet you can't tell me 
what was the other Belgian song to get to number one on the Billboard charts? No, absolutely no chance. What was it? See, I would have said uh, Plan Pour Moi by Plastic Patron, who's Belgian, not French, but it's not. It what was is in it? 1963, there was a an act called The Singing Nun. Do you remember The Singing Nun? <laughs> no, well, I talked uh, the other week about The Flying Nun. I yep. don't remember The Singing Nun. Well, she's... Oh, um, Sister Janet Mead, she was The Singing Nun. No, I don't know who she is. Well, she did a uh, cover of The Lord's Prayer, which was a big hit in Australia in the early 70s. Oh, well done. No, This Singing Nun sung Dominique. Do you remember Dominique, Nick, Nick? That song. <laughs> No, I, I, I thought you'd know um, Sister Janet Mead for sure. Here, I'll give you a few bars. It went, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mate. Do you like that? First of all. Yeah, not, don't sing. Yeah, first of all, yeah, that'll be the first and last a cappella performance by you on this podcast. And secondly, in the early 70s, I can guarantee you, I wasn't listening to No Sisters. Uh, well, that's I, my, that's I my song. A, Somebody I, I used to know. To, I don't know if it's up to the par of your uh, Brisbane rap song last year, but um, hopefully it gets a slightly better reaction. Oh, fair um, <laughs> All right. Um, moving right along, let's go to movies. And... Uh, Okay, what are some movies that were big in 2011? We had uh, part two of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which was the conclusion to the long and uh, mega successful Harry Potter series. Uh, Now, this is definitely a year when the um, animated features and superhero movies had really started to take over because we had things like X-Men, First Class. We had Thor. We had The Smurfs, we had Kung Fu Panda 2, and a little understated Australian film, which uh, certainly won a degree of popularity, Red Dog, which was a heartwarming tale about a man and his dog in the outback, which I quite liked. But uh, my pick for movie 2011, Finey, is a bit of a sporting favourite. It was a fantastic book. Uh, which I read. One of the few instances, actually, where I've both read the book and seen the movie, Um, if you're picking up what I'm talking about, I am talking about Moneyball, uh, which is certainly a book that every football coach worth his salt has read along the journey. Uh, The rights of that, I think it came out in about 2004. The rights were immediately snapped up. The movie didn't come out until 2011. But it is a great movie. Um, So Moneyball for the few people listening to this who don't know what it's about is about the Oakland Athletics baseball team in the US and how in 2002, faced with faced with a bit of financial hardship, they had to assemble a playing roster at bargain basement prices. And uh, their general manager, Billy Bean, who was a sort of failed player of the past, he... Um, bumped into uh, a sort of, what was he, statistics guru or a a slash economist slash IT man um, who actually was a combination of several people in real life, but the character in the film is called Peter Brand and he is Billy Bean's assistant general manager, played by Jonah Hill, 
and uh, together they assemble a playing list um, or, or recruiting strategy based purely on numbers. So they just were driven by numbers and they overlooked uh, a lot of sort of um, generally held beliefs about particular players and their weaknesses and why they'd been overlooked for major league teams. Uh, and this brought them into conflict with uh, the manager and administration and the recruiting staff of the club, but they held their nerve and uh, didn't work very well early on. And people were saying, oh, you've stuffed everything up. Um, the Oakland A's then went on a 20-game winning streak during the 2002 season, ended up winning the American League West, lost uh, in a uh, divisional playoff, I think, to Minnesota. That would be the Minnesota Twins. Um, and it was a, a raging success, this team full of guys who, for various reasons, had been shunned or overlooked or written off because of weaknesses in their game. Instead, they looked at their streets, statistically speaking, and uh, they were able to do the job for them. Elements of that really, I think, about the way Richmond approached uh, their remaking in 2017, and only, and by that I mean only by virtue of concentrating on strengths rather than weaknesses. Um, and anyway, it was phenomenally successful. Billy Bean was made a huge offer by the Boston Red Sox, uh, I think something like $12 million a year or so. He would have been the highest paid general manager ever in professional sports history. And he knocked it back and stayed with the Oakland A's. And, of course, two years later, the Boston Red Sox famously... Um, uh, blew away the curse of the Bambino, Babe Ruth, and won uh, the World Series in 2004. And uh, they hadn't done that for something like 70-odd years, 77 years or 70-something years. And so he missed out. And, and they, the Red Sox went on and basically used the same recruiting strategy and won the World Series out of it. Now, this film, sports films can be a bit problematic in, uh, you know, the way they recreate the actual sporting scenes and, um, you know, various nuances of people involved. So you set a very high bar when you do a sport movie because you know that diehard fans are going to be very picky. But this film was almost unanimously uh, loved by critics and fans alike. They paid a lot of attention to detail. Brad Pitt was terrific as Billy Bean. And similarly, Jonah Hill as Peter Brand. Who else was in it? Philip Seymour Hoffman played the manager of the side, Art Howe. Um, it's it's a great film. It is really is a terrific film. And yes, even if you're not into baseball, which I'm not particularly, it is gripping and interesting and it's quite funny and um, irreverent and uh, poignant. Um it was nominated for several Oscars and uh, a deserved success. And uh, for anyone who has even a passing interest in sport, uh, I would say it's a must-watch. Great film, Moneyball, 2011. Very fulsome review. Well done. My movie... Have you seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved it. Yeah, my, my, okay. My, my movie from 2011, brilliant concept. I think most people agree conceptually, great idea. Execution... Maybe a little bit, um, little bit loose endish and not perfect, but nevertheless, good, good, very good um, cast, and so good was the concept that it's still an eminently watchable movie that I definitely enjoyed. It's called Limitless, 
Are you familiar with it, Rowan? I'm not, no. First first time I heard of it. Okay, Limitless stars Bradley Cooper and Abby Cornish and also co-stars Robert De Niro. And it tells the story of Eddie Mora, who is a pretty useless uh, wannabe novelist, just sort of bumming through life, mainly off his girlfriend. In fact, his girlfriend decides to kick him out. He's, as far as being a novelist is concerned, he's barely got page one on his super novel written. So he's really struggling in life, living in a one-bedroom apartment and barely making ends meet. When he runs into the brother of his ex-girlfriend, who seems to be doing very well in life, and he tells him, the brother tells him about this new drug yet to be approved by the Federal Drug Authority in the States, but available to a select few called NZT. And what NZT does, allegedly, is unlock 100% of the brain's capacity. You know that it's said that we only use a small portion of our brain, and if we could unlock it all, we'd all be super people. Well, he gives one tablet, which is a 24-hour dose, to to Eddie, and it does everything promised and more. It un- unlocks his memory of everything he's ever seen in his life, anything he's ever read, anything he's ever observed. He becomes an instant super genius, multilingual, mathematical genius, uh, able to work out gambling, gambling formula at an instant. And what happens is that Eddie actually gets access to a large supply of NZT by nefarious means and starts taking it. What he also learns is that if you stop taking it, the come down is so bad it actually kills you. So he needs to maintain his supply, but he becomes a genius on the stock market. Um, look, I'm not going to give away the whole script because I think it's worth, worth, worth watching, but I've set up the story. What happens then is obviously inter, intertwined with the criminality of what he's doing, criminals behind NZT, and it takes you to unusual places. But it does explore the endless possibilities that would be available to us all if we could unlock 100% of our brain power. Limitless also became a TV series. Not so successful as a TV series, but Bradley Cooper, very very strong performance in what is a pretty good movie, Limitless. Sounds good. No, no, I'm very interested in checking that one out. I don't know why I hadn't heard of it. Um all right, TV. Now, uh, I found one other one that uh, deserves an honourable mention. It was an Australian um, miniseries uh, called The Slap. And uh, it was a book written by, uh, I knew I'd forget his name, Greek uh, Christos. Uh, I've forgotten his surname. Anyway, Pist- The Pistos, Slap was a. Not Pistos Essos Newtos. No, no. You know, no, that, was a, that was a. That was a. When I went to Melbourne University, that was one of the sort of uh, social clubs you could join. And people who went to Melbourne Uni will know Pistis as its Newtos quite well. No, he's um, – gee, I don't know how our connection's going here because I can't see you now and your voice is sounding like a robot, which is interesting. Hopefully it's not coming out like that. No, I think Um, it's coming out okay. No, it's a uh, – I I should have looked up the author's name. Anyway – 
the slap, if you haven't seen it, it's a particularly good miniseries. I think the ABC had it as like a six-parter. Um, but I've gone with, uh, it's a very obvious selection, but it could not be ignored because it became an absolute international phenomenon, which only wrapped up last year after none, no less than eight seasons. And I'm talking, finally, of course, about Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones, I've got to say, it's a genre that I've never been that interested in. Um, fantasy slash sci-fi uh, slash, I guess it covers a few genres, but it's that, you know, totally sort of mystical, um, uh, you know, fantastical setup. Uh, I'm, I'm a realist, you know, I like things, I like social realism. So it, it just isn't my cup of tea at all. But as it started to gain popularity in that first season. I remember my daughter, Andrea, put me onto it and made me sit down and watch an episode with her. And straight away, I was completely sucked in. I, the God knows how much, how many millions of dollars went into producing the whole thing. I should have looked it up because they spared absolutely no expense on sets, um, you know, cinema photography, uh God, it was an, such an extravaganza in production terms. But, it, you know, it was a lot more than... Uh, at, at its fundamental level, it's it's really a bit of a soapy. But it had very complex storylines. There were often about sort of half a dozen different story threads that you had to keep up with, and that proved challenging for some of us. Uh, it also was notable early on particularly for its very, very liberal doses of both sex and violence. Uh, very graphic um, in either category. So if that's you go, uh, I and you haven't seen it, I certainly recommend it. But it just sucks you in, uh, and it was so brilliantly done. Um, I was a convert instantly, and uh, like everyone else, you know, the more I watched, the more, and they'd leave it, it towards the end. You know, there was sort of a year between um, series, and I think we waited about a year and a half for the last season, season eight, which did get criticised by a lot of people because they thought they tied up the loose ends a bit too conveniently and the plots were a little bit thin. Uh, I wasn't that critical. I, I thought it still packed a punch at the end when it came to its conclusion um, and the ending wasn't obvious, I think, which helped. Um, this is all written off the books by George R. R. Martin, or if you like pirates, George R. R. Martin, uh, whose book, A Song of Ice and Fire, was, um, oh, it was a series, sorry, and the first book of that series was called Game of Thrones. Uh, basically about the seven kingdoms and the battle for ownership of the Iron Throne and thus control over the entire um, uh, region of Westeros. And uh, notable actors or characters, uh, Daenerys Targaryen, that uh, beautiful young blonde Princess, played very well by Amelia Clark. Jon Snow, the bastard son of the Stark family, played by Kit Harrington. And you had the, the basically the warring families, a bit like Romeo and Juliet in a way, the Starks and the Lannisters. Um, Sansa Stark and Arya Stark, the brave and plucky daughters of the Stark clan. Tyrion Lannister, of course, uh, arguably the most famous character out of it, the dwarf uh, and the sort of um, uh, black sheep of the Lannister family who becomes a hero. Cersei Lannister, who plays the tyrannical wife 
uh, or Ruler and Jamie Lannister. I'm going on and on about it finally because it was a fantastic series and uh, I never failed to be entranced, captivated uh, by it and millions of people around the globe thought similarly. It was an absolute phenomenon. I think few TV shows in the history of TV have been as big as that one. Game of Thrones. I can proudly say I never saw one minute of it and never will. Just not my go. And I reckon my nomination, likewise, you will not have seen one minute of. And that is a just a, a brilliantly successful animated series, seven times nominated for Emmy Animated Series of the Year, two-time winner, the quirky, much-loved Bob's Burgers. Have you ever seen Bob's Burgers? Bob's Burgers? No, I haven't. Yeah, absolute ripper. You know, ostensibly, if you turned it on, you might think it's a kid's animation program, but definitely one for all of the family. It's been going for 10 seasons, continues to gain fans from amongst those who watch it. It's a very simple premise. It tells the story of the Belcher family, Bob and his wife, Linda, and their three children, Tina, Jean, and Louise, and they run a very simple burger restaurant in a sort of un, a non-extraordinary little coastal town. They have some regulars on the program, the, their landlord, Teddy. Uh, Teddy is a regular customer. Across the road is um, their opposition, which is an Italian restaurant. That's a bit of a regular but it's basically the interplay between the family. The kids are extraordinarily funny, uh, quirky. It's impossible really to describe it other than to say that the evolution of the animated family that has gone from the Flintstones to the Simpsons to Family Guy continues to evolve and have more nuance and, for me, a better balance of humour and pathos and and life lessons in Bob's Burgers. It, it's a brilliant production and, as I say, in its 10th season, was a bit of a sleeper when it started, but now well-loved and critically acclaimed. Worth, worth watching. Okay. okay. No, very good. I can't believe you failed to mention South Park in that roll call of animated shows. Yeah, no, no, I was, I was talking about family. Family-based. Oh, fa- okay. Sorry, sorry. Where that, that? Oh no, well, South Park's got families. They're just completely dysfunctional. Yeah, oh, I'm not sure about the functionality. I think that's. Oh, if I looked at South Park, it's more the life of um, a group of school children, rather than yeah. the Flintstones, yeah. the Simpsons, the Griffins, and the Belchers. Yeah, yeah, no, no, good. I'll I'll check it out. All right, uh, let's finish off this segment with a quick footy memory each. Now, I think 2011, as soon as you said the year, I thought footy memory. This was the first thing that popped into my head. I've been driving this barrow for a long time now because I think that the goal uh, kicked by Travis Varco halfway through the last quarter of the 2011 grand final is the arguably the most underrated bit of grand final action in history to the extent I think this is the greatest goal in grand final history. Whoa. And if you don't believe me, uh, absolutely, mate. It's better than Phil Manassas' run. It's better than Gabbo. It is an incredible bit of play. 
Um, and if you don't believe me, just have a take out the last quarter. It's about, I think it's about 15 minutes in. So Varco camps under a, a high ball in his defensive 50, about 30 metres from his defensive goal. Takes a whack, gets cleaned up by, I think, Alan Toovey, um, but holds his ground. The ball hits the ground. He keeps his feet, gets to it, and immediately takes off towards the wing. The ball arrives at the wing. There's a scramble right on the logo on the member's side, and Barco has kept running. The ball comes loose to him. He toes it off the ground, another 30 metres forward towards the boundary line, but deliberately to uh, two Geelong teammates, Steve Johnson and uh, Alan Christensen, who combine. Christensen gives a handball to Steve Johnson, who pumps it into the forward line. Varco continues to run into the forward 50. There's a marking contest between Heredia Lumumba and Mitch Duncan. Uh, the ball comes off their hands straight into the arms of Varco, who has continued to run. He wheels onto his left foot. And from 30-odd, 35 metres out, dribbles a goal through, which puts Geelong 21 points up and effectively clinches the premiership. It is the most amazing piece of hard running and team play that I've ever seen in any game, let alone a grand final, and an incredible solo effort, which I don't think ever got the kudos it deserved. And in fact, not long after that, in fact, Matthew Egan, uh, had just gone to Essendon as an assistant coach. And I remember talking to him about it. And he said, funny you mentioned that because we constantly show that effort to players in terms of the amount of defense, of hard running that you have to do in the game. Incredible effort. That, for me, was one of the great moments in grand final history, Travis Farco's grand final goal. Beautifully described. Yeah, well done. 2011 saw the introduction of the first of the expansion clubs. I speak of the Gold Coast. And, yeah, they were pretty interesting times, weren't they? With both Gold Coast and GWS playing in the pre-season competition, but Gold Coast actually being part of the 2011 season proper. And my highlight is the win out of nowhere in round five. Round one, Gold Coast didn't play. They had a bye. They appeared for the first time, and the first team they ever played was Carlton at the Gabba, and they received an absolute mauling, losing by 119 points. Round two, they ventured down to Melbourne to play the Doggies at Docklands, and they lost by 71 points. Round three, back at uh, the Gabba, which was at that point their home ground as Metricon was being developed, and they lost by 90 points. So it's fair to say that, well, is it fair to say? Hopes weren't all that high when they travelled to Football Park in Adelaide to take on Port Adelaide. Nobody would have given them a chance, I would have imagined. Uh, at quarter time, they trailed by three goals, five goals to two. At halftime, Port Adelaide led 9-5 to 5-6. And at three-quarter time, Port Adelaide seemingly on the bit, 14-7 to 9 goals 9. But then the unthinkable. An amazing last quarter. And they got up 15 goals 14 to 15 goals 11. Pretty amazing victory. Uh, Gary Ablett played uh, a pretty important role in the game. 
The sort of hero was Brandon Matera, the little forward, whose career at Gold Coast was, I guess, punctuated by variations in form. He kicked a couple of last quarter goals, was fairly heroic. Charlie Dixon, of course, then a Gold Coast player, chimed in with an important goal, Luke Russell. But it was an amazing win, and when you look at the team, barely recognisable. Harley Bennell, of course, playing for them. Nathan Bock, Jared Brennan, Charlie Dixon, Josh Fraser played in the game, as did Daniel Harris. Carmichael Hunt, of course, was part of that team. Uh, I mentioned the important role played by uh, young Matera. Zach Smith was also playing there his first time around with the Gold Coast. Uh, Seb Tape played for them. And Maverick Weller was one of their better players as well. So many of those players ended up going to other clubs. And I guess for Gold Coast, it was the amazing win that nobody expected. The week after, do you know who they played, Rowan? Uh, they played Essendon at uh, Docklands and uh, Essendon kicked a record first quarter score of, I think, 14 or 15 goals and Kyle Reimers ended up with eight. Yeah, they lost by 139 points. Yes, <laughs> it was a bit of a come down. They did win the week yeah, after no, against Brisbane, though, surprisingly. Yeah, no, it's good. To, I remember that game. I remember there was a lot of excitement about them getting up. I remember Luke Russell kicking the goal that either put him in front or sealed the the win. Um, yeah, it was uh, hard to believe that's a decade ago, wasn't it? Or yeah. nearly a decade ago. Yeah, amazing. All right. Uh, good stuff. All right. Uh, that is vinyl and video for this week. We'll be back next week to take you back in time and uh, revisit our favourite music, movies, TV and footy memories from whatever year I choose because it's my turn next week. All right, Finey, how about we do a bit of ranting? Good idea. On Footyology... The rant off. Okay, well, uh, I, I think our rants are, um, I was worried they were going to become a bit sameish, but it's amazing the possibilities that can unfold, even in these times of social isolation and staying at home. And uh, I've got a, a funny little experience I wanted to rant about, Finey. So uh, count me in, if you will. I'm looking forward to it. One, two, three, let's go. I'm pissed off with Marie Kondo, Finey. Heard of her? She's the Japanese organising consultant whose Netflix series Tidying Up with Marie Kondo caused a storm last year. My better half saw it, and ever since then, the heat's been on at our humble abode to junk just about everything except the clothes off our backs. I knew it was only a matter of time, and on the weekend, it happened. My Saturday morning slumber was disturbed at 6.30am, mind you, by the ominous sounds of a truck reversing into our driveway and a huge mini-skip being deposited. Why is it, incidentally, that if you're a tradie, labourer or truckie, everything you do has to be while the rest of us are still trying to sleep? Is it so they can start queuing nine deep at my local 7-Eleven from about 3pm every day for pies and cans of Red Bull? Anyway, I knew I was in trouble because, you see, Finey, I am a proud hoarder. There's no item too insignificant, too useless for me not to be reduced to tears by the very thought of having to part with it. Yes, of course I've got cupboards and cupboards full of old footy records and not just VHS but beta videotapes of VFL matches from the early 1980s. Of course I've still got my old school reports or in my case, given how long ago I went to school, 
ye olde school reports. As I tearfully went through the drawers and drawers of junk I've accumulated over the last decade or so have lived at our current abode, I'm pretty sure I uncovered old toenail clippings. What could I possibly have kept them for, you ask? Who knows? Maybe I was planning to sell them on eBay. But it was traumatic, and not even about my own belongings. As my son blithely tossed out seemingly half his childhood keepsakes, I kept yelling at him that he'd regret it. That old Buzz Lightyear doll, he'd be sorry. The assortment of Nerf guns and those bloody Nerf bullets that would turn up in the unlikeliest of places, he'd miss them. I should point out at this stage that my son has just officially reached adulthood. At least he reminded me of that when he saw me sobbing about giving away his toy cars. Dad, you know I'm allowed to drive a real one now, right? I guess he had a point. But these are our memories, finally, symbolised by the objects we've collected along the journey. Time and circumstance doesn't reduce their sentimental value, does it? Well, maybe occasionally it does. Like that old recording I had of Rolf Harris singing Two Little Boys. Or even more recently, a copy of that article I wrote about why Mark Latham was going to make a great Prime Minister. But I have serious problems finally letting anything go. I kept throwing bags of stuff in the mini-skip, then when no one was looking, taking them out again and hiding stuff like a dog burying a bone in the backyard. Hundreds of years from now, they'll be excavating our joint, they'll stumble across my carefully curated collection of Scanlon's footy cards and wonder how anyone could be that anal. And yes, they'll probably find the sticks of gum that came with them and ask, as we did, how does anyone actually eat that stuff? It's a human tragedy, finally. My keepsakes are disappearing before my eyes and it's like my whole life history is being erased. And I blame you, Marie Kondo. I bet you've never experienced the joy of possessing hundreds of outdated and pointless items that you can't even use anymore because technology no longer supports them. I bet you never knew the joy of looking for something, finding something else completely irrelevant and getting so sidetracked by nostalgia you forget what you were looking for in the first place. Okay, so I've got no room for anything in my study anymore and I can no longer see the carpet. But I've got a collection of 30-year-old toenails that even you'd kill for. Oh, that was a great piece, and I'm sort of torn there a bit, Rowan, because Why is that? on one hand, I like throwing things out. I am not a hoarder. But on the other hand, I love old footy records, old VHSs and beaters and uh, football games and footy cards. So I think part of your collection I would dearly love to have a bit of a forage around and part of your collection I couldn't get in the bin quick enough. Oh, look, it's heart-wrenching. It is heart-wrenching stuff. It's going to get take me a lot to get over it. All right, are you ready? I am ready. Three, two, one, rant. I've got to say I have very little time for the growing number of smart asses that are gladly using this time of self-isolation at home to proudly tell the world that they are taking on a new skill. These are the sort of individuals that don't let a minute pass without an opportunity for self-improvement. And aren't they so proud and cocky to let us all know about it? So-and-so has learned how to play the piano or even the sousaphone. Really? You've learned how to play the piano in three weeks? How about those people that are taking on a new language? Some are going for French. Others, a more difficult assignment, maybe classical Danish, High German or Swahili. Well, I'll tell you this. The facts are that an adult, certainly somebody over the age of 35, 
will never be able to learn a language fluently. We simply have too much already stored in our brains to have the capacity to take on a new language, unless you get the drug from Limitless. Nevertheless, they're going to be out there with a few words of French, uh, a couple of mercies and je ne sais quoi's, and claim that they've been able to learn an entire new language in five weeks of isolation. It gets worse. It gets messy. People are trying to learn how to make their own bread. Perhaps uh, break down a whole goat or taking on giant amounts of wax to become chandlers. Yes, they're all going to go to see the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and leave a very messy household behind as they put their new skills to good use. No, none of that for me. I'm not learning the piano because I'm hopeless at it. I cannot learn a new language. My brain won't allow it. And I'm not going to become a bread maker or a butcher or a candlestick maker. For me, the time will be spent relaxing, slowing down, learning to live with and maybe eventually love the family members that have been locked in lockdown with me. And the most important thing I'm doing day by day is I'm really learning to appreciate those things that are no longer accessible to me. So the next time I go to a restaurant, the next time I go to the football, the next time I go over to a mate's place for a game of darts, I'm going to cherish it because I know what life is like without it and I'm not enhancing it by speaking another language or by learning how to make bread. Uh, very good. Very good. Well, I, I went on that bread uh, rant last week, Fanny. It's, it's, it's the new black baking bread. Yes, they can stick it up their collective clackers. Well, a French loaf or a baguette. Of course, a French loaf. That, or, uh, wah, wah, bien sûr. <laughs> Hello. Yes. All right. Or, uh, as, I say, or, okay. or as I say in um, Swahili. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. That's uh, just about enough for this week. Thanks for your company again. Uh, hope everyone's staying safe, washing their hands. Yep, I'm going to keep saying it until we stop having to do it. Well, you never stop having to wash your hands. Maybe it's taught a few of us better hygiene, if nothing else. Uh, quick plug for our sponsors once again, Fanny. Don't make bread. Get bread at the best place you can with a burger and a beautiful burger it is in between those two wonderful, wonderful bread rolls. I speak, of course, of Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And if you're in the market for a rebuild or an entire new home when all this is said and done, Think West Point Properties, Nick Spartels, is the man to call. Two great thanks sponsors. Thanks again for your support. Thanks again for your support, our generous sponsors. But thanks again for your support, our very generous audience. Uh, we love your loyalty. We love having you on board this exercise. And we are determined to keep going right through these dark days. Uh, hopefully we will emerge from them soon. All right, good to catch up with you again, Finey, even via teleconference. Um, we shall do it again same time next week stay well everyone we'll see you next time